turn to the book of 2 John. If you are just now joining us for the first time, we've been going through the book of 2 John for a whole week now, and we're going to wrap it up today. Last week I said that there is the legitimacy of Jesus Christ always available for an argument. Whether his humanity or his divinity, whether his lordship or even his presence, people question and attack what Jesus really was and who Jesus truly is. Now our passage this morning gets to all of that, that the nitty gritty of this book, that the person of Jesus is under attack. So I want to bring your attention to the conclusion of 2 John where I think that you'll see uh, what to do in your own home or in your relationship or even at your own dinner table when attackers of the truth of the gospel start to argue for what they believe. And I think John tells us what we can do in the midst of this argument. Now last week I gave you a statistic where I said that around 40% of American evangelicals say that Jesus was God living among man, but wasn't really or fully man. I found some more alarming statistics this week where 80% of evangelicals said yes to to this question. Is Jesus the greatest thing ever created? 80% said yes, whereas the Bible says Jesus wasn't created. Or also about a quarter of evangelicals say that God the Father is more divine than Jesus. So I bring all this up mostly to point out that the argument that's happening in 2 John is is a lot of the same argument that's still going on today in our churches. The, The presence of false teachers is a common experience in the church around us where people are often wrong and they often say wrong things, but some people say that it's okay because love is love and God is love and God just wants everyone to love and God just wants everyone to feel love and kind of love whatever you want. It it doesn't really matter as long as you love. Whereas John says that there are boundaries of love and those boundaries are truth. So if you were to see your life as like a circle and inside this circle you live and you operate and you, and you live out of love because you were first loved, the, the boundary of your love extends as far as truth is prominent in your life. So John writes with something in mind that is, that is truly serious about what is happening inside of the churches. So with that in mind, let me read to you from the last seven verses of 2 John. And, and let me put this question in your mind before I read it. What do you do when a false teacher begins to influence those around you? Let's see what God's word says. Second John, starting in verse 7, says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win with full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
some, so some particulars about 2 John before we dive into the text, whether you're new or just need a reminder. This, this book was written by John, or this letter was written by John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and other letters that say that they're from John. This would have happened decades after Christ had ascended into the heavens, decades after the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost, and decades going into church history where not only churches were established, but also generations and generations would have lived within those churches. And here writes Jesus' last living apostle out of deep love for those who he knows. Writes a series of letters to churches to guide them through what he sees them going through. Now, in many ways, 2 John is different than the other letters. That's why they're different letters. And, and some would see it more like 3 John or more like 1 John. Some say it's like a summary of 1 John. And it certainly looks like that to some degree. Or maybe it's a cover letter where if you read 1 John, then that might give you an indication of where, or read 2 John, it might give you an indication of where 1 John is going. How I like to see 2 John in comparison to the others 2 John is like a series of doors that you can walk by, and if there's something of great interest to you that might just be one phrase in 2 John, you can open that door and explore what that truth might mean more fully in 1 John. Now, either way, heretics and false teachers were going from church to church, and in this case, from house to house, taking advantage of Christian hospitality. And so 2 John was written to the churches in order to equip them and encourage them how they should act when these false teachers were coming in the doors, spreading their poisonous and unscriptural lies. Now, Alistair Begg uses the illustration of when you approach verse 7 in 2 John. It's like it, it would appear if there were a symbol off to the side of it. You know, maybe, maybe off to the side of the first verse, it would be something that would look true. Maybe like a picture of the Bible. Starting off in verse 7, it would be like a skull and crossbones, where you know that danger is on the horizon. Now, before I jump into verse 7, I want to bring your attention to the end of the book. So starting off at the end, I want you to look at verse 12. It says, though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. So the reason why I bring this up is here we see at the end many of the same things that we see at the beginning. John's devotion for the people within the church is just paramount to his writing and his love and his desire. He says he's got a lot of things to say to them, but he's not going to spend time writing because he really wants to come to them face to face. So if you look at what the letter began with, John places his argument for what to do when false teachers come on the foundation of knowing the truth or knowing the gospel. Now, John MacArthur has been helpful to me in this circumstance where uh, he says that if the church is to live in the truth, if the church is to love regularly because of the truth, if the church is to be rooted in the, in the truth and protect the truth, then they must constantly be learning the truth. There are still things that John wants to tell them. And no doubt he wants to talk to them about the things that we should know about God. You know, he's not going to come and meet them and say, hey, did you see the football game yesterday? Or, or hey, may, these are all the books I've been reading lately. Or, or, hey, tell me about your kids. He wants to fully engage them with the truth of the gospel, reminding them of who Jesus is. The results of the church is his desire for them to grow and learn the truth because he says that it results in joy or that their joy may be complete. Now, here's why I point this out. The, the greater knowledge of truth the greater the Christian's joy. 
So the greater knowledge that we have of the truth, the greater our joy can be. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became my joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jesus also connected knowing and obeying the truth with great joy. He says in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Or in John 17, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So notice the bookends. The beginning is much like the end or the end is much like the beginning. Truth is so vital. It's so foundational to what John is talking about. And it's not just so foundational so that your head might explode with great knowledge, but because when God's people use their time to understand God's purposes, his people, it says in the scriptures, become joyful. They become peaceful. They become patient. They become kind they become good they become faithful they become gentle and self-controlled they become the greatest of these things loving people and so john writes and starts just how he would end and ends just how he would start that he wants his people to ground themselves in the truth all right so that with that let's jump in see the section today as the therefore statement of all the other six verses that we would have talked about last week So here we have kind of the therefore that John is arguing. John wants the church in us not to be led astray or deceived by Antichrist because he wants us to be grounded in truth, which brings us joy. So there are three main things that I think are the how of this text. If he wants us to be grounded in the truth so that we're not deceived by Antichrist around us, how does he want us to do that? So number one on your outline, we are now at number one. There is danger of going back or I want you to see the danger of going back on the truth so John's letter is addressing a problem that he sees creeping into the church and that problem is misapplying the command and extent of love to the point of supporting false teachers either monetarily or through hospitality and love will have its boundaries and that boundary like I've said before is truth now these troublemakers John describes them these troublemakers are deniers of who Jesus is he's saying that they don't believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man and he calls them deceptive or deceivers for many deceivers he said in verse 7 have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh those who deceptively bring an air or non-truth into the church and start teaching it so that other people can be consumed by it he, he's saying that the, there are two options when these, when these deceptive people come in. Either they're saying that Jesus or that the Messiah came in Jesus at the baptism of Jesus and then left Jesus just before the cross. Or he's saying that these people are describing Jesus as we would call like a phantom or a ghost. Last night, my, my wife is currently coming back from Oklahoma, so I was at my house all by myself, which is scary, don't like that, don't have a dog to even make noise, and all of a sudden, I was studying near the wall, and near, on the other side of the wall is outside, and there was wind rushing by, and there were leaves rushing by, and every time we'd get a gust, I honestly thought, someone is going to kill me. (laughs) So you're jumping, in reality, no one's coming to kill me, no one's there, it's just leaves rustling up against a wall. And that's how they're describing Jesus in the world. 
That these Christians think that that God-man has come. But really, it's just something that appeared in some undescribable way. So what John is saying, these people are acting like are antichrists. One who stands against Christ or stands in the place of Christ. An antichrist historically has been understood more broadly as a belief of opposition to who Jesus is. And it continually appears in history where people are constantly opposing in different ways and in different forms, whether, whether they're standing opposed in their beliefs or they're trying to take the place of Jesus as an establishment. These teachers are against Christ because they deny that he is indeed, or they deny that he has indeed come in flesh or become flesh. And these people, historically, we would see them as called docetists. So D-O-C. E-T-I-S-T-S, docetus. John's condemnation on those who denied Jesus has come in the flesh are aimed at this specific group of people, though we can see all around them there are people kind of like this. So these docetists are basically defaming and trying to bring down the glory of God by saying that he's not, that Jesus is not actually man. That he might be divine in some way, but he's not man. So the incarnation is at stake here. And the incarnation to Christians is a central aspect to our faith. And here we start to see the understanding that a failed Christology keeps one from believing in a real Christ. If you believe in 50% of who Jesus is, you you actually don't believe in Jesus at all. If you believe in 99% of who Jesus is, you actually don't believe in Jesus at all. So they're doing it through deception. Now, I think they're either doing it through deception of a full-blown, self-aware, anti-Christ person in these people's lives. They, they either know what they're doing and they're going after it, or I think another option would be that they are being swept up and used by Satan. But either way, what John is saying to do with those instances is not different in, in who's controlling who. He's saying to block them off completely because they're trying to tear down what God has done through John and through the other believers. The things that we have worked for in the text suggests that all the the church and the missionary efforts that were started by either John or other readers of this text. So he's saying, don't go back on what's been done. Look at what's been done and, and see these people in opposition to it. They're dragging you away from what God has established through this church. This progress and work would be lost, John says, if the opponents of Christ get their way within the, within the church and, the, and they get their platform. He's saying they're taking away from what Christ has done, so don't go back. So I, I want to dive in really briefly to the word incarnation so you can write down the word incarnation because it's super important and you can study it for the rest of your life. It's, it's not a word that you'll find in the actual scripture. It's much like a, a theological word or phrase that we would use to describe the Trinity or try to understand the Trinity. So in understanding the incarnation, we see it fully unpacked in John 1.14, where John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, when I say word, I mean w, capital W-O-R-D, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here, the word is the title or designation for the person who existed in the beginning and uniquely was God, as John says, and was with God as John also says. The word was the source of life and light for all who received him and could be said to be in the world. And John is saying that the word has come in flesh. 
He claims that the word became flesh, or to put it another way, became the physical living substance of, what, of which human beings are made, body and soul. So, so Jesus, the man, was, was body and soul like you and I are. Now, the Son of God didn't turn into flesh like a boy turns into a man somehow. Or a creepy man in a movie turns into a werewolf. Jesus doesn't simply assume flesh. He doesn't just put on flesh like we might put on a coat or a jacket in the wintertime. Nor did the word become united with an existing human life. Like he, like he found a soul and a body to come into and now that's how he exists. Like in a Disney movie. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And 2 John verse 7 says that deceivers do not confess Jesus as coming in this way. And so they must be countered and they must not be messed with. John is saying that Jesus is the son of God and he is truly or fully man and truly or fully God. So what does John tell us to do in this case? Still, and don't go back on the truth. Don't go back on your faith. Don't give up ground on what you know to be true. Don't entertain people who defame and try to bring down who God is. There is danger, and it's losing what we've already gained. Look to yourselves, he says. Be aware. Take heed. The false teachers offer something that you don't have, but what they offer you is actually taken away with something, taken away of something that you do have. Satan is a thief. And so are his helpers. And John is wanting his readers to receive a full reward when they enter the kingdom. And he's saying, don't go back on what has been done. See them for who they are. Don't lose the things that we've accomplished. It's essential that we hold fast to the truth of the word of God. Watch yourselves. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Peter in just chapter 1. Many ways that we can watch ourselves, the Bible says. Second Peter, and in chapter 1, you might go home and go, okay, I want to watch myself. I don't know if I need like Bible glasses that you can buy at a store, or maybe do I just literally stand at the door and just watch everyone? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have just another example of how the Christian faith was once delivered to us by Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, but we can be more rooted or more grounded and stand more firmly on this foundation by seeking him through our lives. And we'll never grow tired of it. One of my good friends in high school was on the academic team. And being on the academic team is arguably hard. Uh, because you have to be smarter than everyone else, and he certainly was. And he would study for this academic team bowl all the time. Every day he'd stay after school and study and study and study. And I don't know what it takes to study for an academic bowl, but I have watched Jeopardy, and apparently you have to know everything. And so it was flashcards or computer programs or books or all the time. And I said, man, how do you keep doing this day after day? And he just looked at me and he said, when you love something, there are no days off. Which is pretty bright for a 16-year-old. And here we have the truth of the glory of God's gospel in front of us. 
in a way that we can ground ourselves in it and face opposition is to grow in the knowledge of him. It's like when you decide to start eating healthy, it's kind of difficult at first, but when you're doing the right thing, the wrong thing becomes all the more distasteful. And here we have an example of this in the word of how much it brings us joy or how much it can bring us joy. So deceivers want to create chaos. And more than anything else, they're, they're enemies of God. And he's saying, don't let them take you back. Or he says in another book, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And he is righteous. Or Jesus says in Mark 13, see that no one leads you astray. So what do we do when an enemy is at the gate? Don't go back on the truth, but ground yourself in who God is. Number two, a second piece of advice that John gives us is he he highlights or brings to our attention the danger of going beyond the truth. So I want you to understand the danger of going beyond the truth, Not not just understanding or seeing the danger of going back on the truth, but the danger of going beyond the truth. The danger here is that going beyond the limits of the word of God and adding to it. The false teachers like to make us believe that they are advanced because the church is just in a rut or it's, or it's in an old place where we, where we always need to be making progress on what truth is. They invite us to join them because they have something new or exciting or exceptional or they found something unique. And here's what the text says. If a person does not abide in the biblical doctrine of Christ, then he does not have either the Father or the Son. And you cannot abide in two places. If a storm comes and you go for a closet, you don't go for two closets, you go for one closet. You can't be in one closet and kind of have your arm around in another closet. You're either in a closet or not in a closet. You, where you abide is where your affections are. And he's saying you must abide in the truth of the scripture, the truth of Christ, the teaching of Christ, not going beyond it or going below it. Now this isn't discouraging learning, because if our learning, but if our learning leads us away from the truth of Scripture, then John says that we are on dangerous ground. Thoughts or theologies that deny Christ is not thoughtful at all. It is deceptive, and it is satanic, and it should not be messed with. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where, where there was someone who crept in before Adam and Eve with advanced knowledge or, or the understanding of good and evil. And he just asked Eve a question, did God really say what you think he said? And then we know the rest of the history from that. So what we have here, here are false teachers thought of themselves as advancing the thinking of the church. And John thinks that everyone who goes on ahead is advancing themselves right out of Christianity, where the aim of the believer should be holding fast to the truth that has been revealed and to continue in the teaching of Christ. So we don't just run away aimlessly, but we continue in the teaching of Christ. Don't just do something, someone I remember saying. Don't just do something, but actually stand there. Stand there in the truth of who Christ is and the teaching of Christ. It's necessary to be right about the Son if we are to be right about God the Father. And if you don't have one, then you don't have the other. And he's saying if they're trying to advance our biblical understanding beyond the bounds, beyond the bounds of Scripture, then do not trust them and do not go near them. So we have this example or this instruction where we don't want to grow beyond the biblical Christ, but we want to grow in him. 
Now, New Year's Eve is coming, and I love New Year's Eve because on New Year's Day, I start writing New Year's resolutions, and I never follow them, but they're always really neat to write. You know, I'm going to be taller, or I'm going to read a thousand books, or I'm going to learn to fix my own car. And I hope that all of us will consider the reality and what we should be doing is to not aim to grow beyond Christ, but, but every day in our lives, whether it's tomorrow or in the new year, to grow in Christ where Jesus Christ is the Lord himself according to the scriptures. And he makes himself known to all the world as the redeemer of God's people. Or God's elect, John says. He, he can act as the redeemer because he's the eternal son of God. And we can grow in the knowledge of that. Where we can grow in the understanding that he was conceived by the spirit of God within Mary and born of her. And this is one of the most important characteristics of Jesus that was under attack in this passage because although he was a descendant of Adam or almost an adopted son of Adam, he was born not into original sin yet still has all the royal lineage of who Adam was. And yet he was, as promised, born of a woman. Where now it says in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman will now crush the seed of the serpent with all of his divinity in all of his humanity. But in that, we get to look back, not beyond, but look at, where Jesus, when he takes our place on the cross, he actually takes our place on the cross as a human being. Like I said last week, an animal wouldn't be good enough. It has to be someone who can, who can fully substitute himself for you, and you are body and soul. And that's what Jesus does on the cross, but he also has the authority to do so as the Lord, to declare you righteous and forgiven. So, so if you strip away from Jesus, his humanity, you and I don't have a savior at all. And if you strip away the divinity of Jesus, then it's just another man going to the slaughter at sinful people's hands. So we must not go beyond the scripture because within the reality and the truth of scripture, we have everything that we need. Jesus Christ accomplished all that was asked of others, but he did so unlike any other human in history. He was the announcer of hope like all the prophets before him, except unlike them, he announced that he was the great prophet. He is seen throughout the Bible as a warrior and as a sacrificial lamb making intercessions for his people. He entered into this state of humiliation, which consisted of him being born into a sinful and broken world under the law and enduring the wrath of God for our sake and was buried under the power of sin. Yet Jesus rose three days later and ascended into heaven days after that where he says that he is coming back for his people to judge wickedness and to finally, permanently, eternally be with his people forever. We must understand that this is the Jesus of the scriptures and if we're looking at anything beyond him or below him, we're not looking at him at all. And this is the Christ that we need to know. Charles Hodge has this great quote. This, this old theologian has this great quote. It is only a savior who is both God and man, who is all we need and all we can desire. As God, he is ever present, almighty and infinite. And as man, he can be touched with a sense of our infirmities, was tempted as we are and subjected to the law which we violated and endured the penalty which we should have brought on ourselves. We are therefore complete in who Jesus is and what he did and what he always will do. And we should want nothing more beyond that. So John is saying, 
Don't go beyond the text. Don't go beyond the Christ, but abide in the teaching of Christ. Understand the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Abide in his teaching. I love what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, where Sermon on the Mount is awesome at the beginning, but at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, all the things that you should have read and understand, all those things that have been talked about, proclaiming the Messiah, they're all talking about me. And then he just unveils a proper and right teaching of all those things in the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end, he says that if we subject ourselves to the law which we have violated, and if we subject ourselves to him as our Lord, then he is the one who either gives us security or destruction based solely on how we respond to his words. So don't go beyond, but abide. Now, thirdly, there's the danger of going back. There's the danger of going beyond. There's the danger of going beside the truth. I want you to feel the danger of going beside the truth here. Now, now maybe going beside isn't a helpful category. I thought of that about 6 a.m. this morning. That was actually not a third helpful point, but everything's been printed. All the slides are made. What I mean to say is it's actually dangerous to even try to compare anything else in the world with Jesus the Lord. It is incredibly dangerous, whether it's an idol in your life or an aspiration of your soul, to try to put it up on the same platform of who Jesus is. There is true danger in going beside the truth. Now I want to bring out, well, I'll read just what he says here in verse 10. Anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, what kind of setting this is not talking about is it's not saying when someone comes to you as either an unbeliever or a false teacher, it's not saying be a jerk to them. It's not saying don't be a neighbor to them. You know, if they want to come to your 4th of July barbecue, you should invite them to your 4th of July barbecue. They live next door. They're going to smell it. (laughs) Christians, the Christian church expanded early on because we were something that the world is not. We, We were gracious to people who deserved wrath. Because the Lord was gracious to us when we deserved wrath. There is something unique about going up to someone and saying, you don't have to do anything for me, to me, for me to love you. And so hospitality is not something that this text denies, nor nor is this this term friendship evangelism. You know, there's this current author, um, or a living author, Rosea Butterfield, who she was a uh, secular um, professor at a university Um, living a life that is completely opposite of Christian virtues. And it was through one of her neighbors who would just always invite her to dinner. Both this guy and his wife would always invite her to dinner and just talk to her about the faith, listen to her, let let her speak about where she came from. And and that friendship led to the Lord up opening up her heart and his glory being poured into it where she saw that Jesus was her savior where she was running from him forever. So what this text isn't doing is it's saying, it's not saying don't be nice to people. It's not saying don't be hospitable to people. But what kind of setting is this talking about? Christians denied welcome to two kinds of people in the New Testament. We see that Christians denied uh, this kind of hospitality to those who persisted in immoral lifestyles. So you sleep with your mother-in-law, we're not going to hang around you. Because everyone will look at that and say, No one should hang around that person because of such serious sexual sins. And then the second is those who were spreading false teaching. 
So there's a difference between having a neighbor who believes something different than you, who doesn't believe in the truth. And, and, and that is in comparison to a neighbor who is trying to infiltrate your household or your church with false teaching. John says, don't give him any greeting. It doesn't mean to insult the person, but don't greet them as a Christian brother. And don't let them teach. And don't let them in. And don't let them influence. Because if you do, you share in his evil deeds. Giving him a public greeting could be understood by an onlooker of you suggesting agreement with that. So, so this would be as random as, let's just think about Calvary, half a mile down the home, or half a mile down the road. If Calvary all of a sudden invited Benny Hinn to speak, we would be like, first of all, what in the world are you doing? And then we would look at these brothers and sisters and go, wait, do you agree with him? We thought that, that we held fast to the teaching of the scriptures, and now because you're allowing him to speak, you must agree with that. So aligning ourselves with false teaching not only does damage to our own soul, but by allowing Satan to fill our minds with doubts, but also it allows onlookers to say, maybe DSC is into something that is ungodly and untrue as well. So not only are we trying to protect the truth and protect ourselves within the truth, but also to protect the truth when the outside world is looking on. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is a test of truth, a basis for fellowship, and a bond for mutual cooperation. So why John was so adamant about this? Because he didn't want any of his children to give a false teacher the impression that their heretical doctrines was acceptable. He didn't want them to ever think that they were okay. And, and two, he didn't want his own people or himself to become infected because of the association of possible friendships. You know, I probably like some of you, if I'm around you for a while, and let's just say you have a really southern accent, after like a couple of days in a car ride, I too will have a really poor but random southern accent because, because you're doing, it'll just kind of bleed off all me, bleed off on me. Or if I'm around you and you're really into something, and I'm like, wow, maybe, maybe I'm into Star Wars too. Like, I can't think of a character, but they're really neat, you know? <laughs> We are so easily influenced by people around us. And John is saying, when those things are untrue, unbiblical, and defaming Christ, do not entertain them. Don't mess with them. Don't let them in your house. Don't let them in your backpack. Don't let them in your wallet. Don't pay anyone to do and advance those things. And then lastly, he didn't want the false teacher to have ammunition to use as the next place where he stops. He didn't want those teachers to go around saying, well, I got to speak at DSC, so why can't I speak at your place? Or he didn't want to go to your, or he wants to go to your community group and then go to another community group and say, well, I got, to, I got to sit and teach in this community group. I should be able to teach in yours. And you're like, well, we are in the same church. Maybe he should. John is saying, do not mess with wolves because they will eat the sheep. Now, how does this relate to us now? Now, there are obvious ways that this re would relate to us now, ways that you know, we would know what to do when a Mormon elder would come to our door because their sole reason for coming to our door is to try to proselytize us or to evangelize us into the Mormon faith. Now, to be clear, if you've got a Mormon neighbor, it's totally great for you to invite them in your home and talk to them and be a, be a friend to them or serve them because you have the opportunity all the time to tell them about faith and about the truth and about Jesus Christ, which they do not believe in the Jesus Christ of the scriptures. But there is a difference between having a neighbor and you're trying to evangelize to them or be good to them through the word than, than a teacher of that religion coming into you and you giving them a platform of which they can teach. 
whether to influence you or to influence your kids or even influence your neighbors. And he's saying, don't do it. Same thing with like a Jehovah's Witness. Now, my grandpa, before he passed away, was a professing Jehovah's Witness. So every time a Jehovah's Witness would come to my door, I would say, I've got some things that I need to settle. Because my grandpa is in hell because of what you believe. So I can go after them with the truth and in love of just saying, here's the thing, I have a problem with this, but it's not that I have a problem with this, it's that the word says this, and you believe something so completely different. So there are obvious things like when a Mormon elder comes or a Jehovah's Witness evangelist comes, but there are less obvious ones. One of the most popular people in our country is someone who, in reality, we all love to watch. Oprah in her show. I mean, who wouldn't want to be there on a Christmas special? Where, where you just get every, she just gives so many things away. It's, it's, really, it's really fun. She seems like a really nice person. But on that show, we must have the discipline enough to where she will have false teachers on there, like Rob Bell or Deepak Chopra, where they will say things about their faith and she'll affirm it and, she, and she'll say, you know, what, what's nice is that we should all believe something. And out of, out of a Christian discipline, you should just say, power off. Don't influence my house. Don't, don't make me think this is normal. It's untrue. It's unhelpful. It makes me go back in my faith just by listening to it, by you trying to add on to the faith. But, I mean, we all like her, and she seems really nice. And I'm not saying don't watch Oprah or don't watch ABC or whatever, but be, but be careful what we allow ourselves to slowly seep into our minds and have the discipline to say, or have the discipline to determine what is just fun and good and then what is now, not borderline, but over the mark of anti-Christian, where someone is allowing anti-Christ to promote their false doctrine. Or other things where, where people come across as Christian authors and their books are not Christian at all. But either they're a Christian, which is fine if Christians write nonfiction or even fiction, like that's awesome, people should write all stuff all the time, it's great to be an author. But there are some things that, that are used by deceptive people to get into your living room or get under your eyes and are to deceptively trying to change your mind about what is true. And it typically looks like all of church history has been wrong for 2,000 years, but look what I discovered a couple years ago. And you're like, wow, how are you smarter than John the Apostle? How are you smarter than Jesus himself? How are you smarter? And why did you get it, not me? And so we need to be careful on what we read. Now, instead of listing off like 30 people you shouldn't read, you know, I'm not a book burner or anything. I'm not going to roll over like Hanson CDs in the parking lot. But, but what I'm saying is, and that's fine if you do, um, I'll give you some of mine. What I'm saying is we have, a, we have a book nook provided for you where we actually have read those things and we want you to read those things. And they're at different levels and for different kinds of people, whether you're younger or older, you're in school or you're not in school or you're a parent or you don't have kids. There are so many things that we can grow in the knowledge of the glory of God in. And if you have a book that we should have up there, then bring it to one of our attention and we'd love to read it and either say, uh, it's not really good because of this or man, we would actually love to put it in the bookstall. Thanks for helping us out with that. Now, there are a couple of situations that I think we can bring up from this text today, not only to bring out obvious situations or less obvious situations, but what do you do when someone comes to you at the door and they're professing a belief that Jesus is the brother of the devil, like a Jehovah's Witness? Now, I think it's fine to stand at the door and talk to them and be quick to say, no, 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 stop talking. This is what actually the Bible says. I know you think you're reading John correctly, but you're not reading John correctly. But don't let him in. 
Don't give them a platform. Don't don't let your spouse be influenced by them. Don't let your kids be influenced by them. We wouldn't allow them to preach here, so don't allow them to preach in your home. You wouldn't choose to let your kids go to a school where they're teaching them about the reality of the Christian religion, so don't let them do it in the home. Or maybe at your community group. Be clear on what the scriptures is. So whether you're a community group leader, you should be the most knowledgeable of the scriptures in your group. Now, there are always cases where some people will say something like, wow, you should be leading the community group. That was amazing. But you should lead the charge in growing in the knowledge of of the gospel. But also if someone says something that's not true, have the courage and the boldness. Stand on the truth to come alongside them and say, hey, what you said, it's not right. And please don't say it ever again. At a church I used to be a pastor at, my, my job was to be over the community group. So I'd bounce around on Sunday mornings and go to different community groups. And I think I've said this story in here, but I'll say it again because it's really great. There was, a, there was a case where a community group was talking about the authority of Scripture and how the, and how the Scripture just impacted their lives and, and how it's true and it enables them to walk in a totally different way. And one guy just casually pops up and says, with, with true conviction... Like, I actually don't think the Bible is authoritative. And I actually don't think that it was written with all truthfulness. I think that some people messed up when they wrote it. And so you have that two seconds of like, uh, what's going to happen now? And the community group leader looked at him and said, you will not speak again. And we're going to move on. And everyone needs to understand that what he said is not true. And that was awkward and it was awesome. Because, because it's not putting that guy up against a wall, it's putting the truth at the center of our aspiration. Christ is good enough to look at continually. And, and when people are distracting from him, we should not waste time. Because we have enough to concern ourselves with in his glory. Or maybe at the dinner table, where you invite some people over and they say some things that are not true. One of the best things you can do in front of those who you love is to say, Man, I really love the hamburger you just made, but that's not true. Like, it's not true. And here's what is true. John doesn't leave us just with this aimless sense of like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He's saying, ground yourselves in the truth that changes the world. Don't go back on these things, but but keep your eyes focused and abide in Christ and you'll be satisfied forever. Or at the office place, uh, when I worked in Alaska and worked for an oil and gas company, a guy hosted a Bible study twice a week in one of the conference rooms and he would just bring people in and we were walking through a book together and he was really helpful and really instructive and every now and then there'd be someone who'd come in and, and, not, and, and they're not morons, so don't hear me say that, but they just say things that are unbiblical. And another guy in the room would just say, Frank, that's unbiblical. We need to move on. And you're like, hey, Bill, you're kind of awesome. Like, I just thought you were really good at equations and Excel, but you, you, you can handle the word. This is really helpful. Because the word and the truth is worth dividing over. And then lastly, a situation I call in the backpack. You have a burden and an opportunity as a parent, not only to allow your kid to maybe go outside the home, but to be very discerning when they come back in. Because the world loves nothing more to distract your kids from the truth of the gospel. You know, when I was in elementary school, I loved going to the book fair. I mean, who doesn't love to go to the book? You've been to the book fair, right? Book fair is where you can buy like a $9 Power Ranger bookmark. <laughs> and you're like, well, it's, it's a, I guess I should buy it because everyone else, ooh, an eraser, you know? So you go to the book fair and you come back with a book. And I remember in like second or third grade, I think it was second grade, I came back. I was like, look what I got for $4 at the book fair. And my mom was like, that's awesome. Let me read it first. 
And apparently it was terrible because the next day we got to go back to the book fair and I got to ask for a refund, which I didn't even conceptually understand because my mom was protecting me from what is false in this literature. Now, my wife and I have two categories for books. We, we find books either helpful or we find books either like Saturday afternoon, you read them and forget them. You know, I, I can't remember the kind of fiction books that Brooke reads. I'm sure they're wonderful. But I love reading Tom Clancy. And, and no one is going to be influenced in their faith by a Tom Clancy novel. No one's even going to be influenced in their, you know, foreign policy assignments from a Tom Clancy novel. So you read something like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't read books, but I'm saying when books place themselves or, or websites place themselves in front of you as, as this is actually the true Christian faith that people haven't understood. You can be very careful with that and very discerning of that. And you want to look to the text to actually see if it's true. And if it's not true, then get that book out of your kid's backpack or get it out of your house. It's not worth messing with. They are too precious to God for you to allow a false teacher or a wolf to try to devour them. And that's not just for parents, but kids who have unbelieving parents. You, you have a unique responsibility there, too, where you are so influential in your parents' faith. Or if you live by yourself, you know, this is what you get to do with other people who might live around you. Join a book club and go for it with the truth. But don't go beside the truth with false faiths. Now, it takes constant spiritual vigilance to protect a family or a local church from the deceptive attacks of the teacher's of these false teachers. And, and John is showing us these two imperatives or these two things we must do in the text. He says, watch yourselves and do not receive them when they're false teachers. So instead of watching myself or ourselves, I or we are typically prone to laziness and we assume the truth instead of caring for our own souls by continually building it up or we're entrusting of the truth that we have and consider uh, or we're untrusting of the truth that we have and we consider other virgins or uh, religions or teachings because we want to be inclusive or affirming or ecumenical. Instead of not entertaining or giving platforms to false teachers, we are either not bold in standing firm the truth that has been, been delivered to us and shown to us to, through Jesus, or we don't fully understand what's at stake when false teachers come in. Lives are at stake. The glory of the Lord is at stake. Generations and generations of people are at stake. And the truth is worth it to fight for. And we can be reminded, John is not writing this to us from a, in a negative tone. Like I said before, he's not just saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and try to be happy. He reminds us of who Jesus was and is. Jesus is the truth. He tells us who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the exact imprint of the very nature of God. He was perfect in nature and obedient in character. He sets us free from our sins when we place our trust and hope in him. He, he is one who we can have true dependence on in a world that, that we can never be dependent on. And the Spirit gives us new breath and new life. And John is saying, abide in the teachings of Christ. It, to one degree, it's more than enough to fill your day. But to another degree, your heart is at stake. Now, how does resting in his work to close? How does resting in his work and walking in the Holy Spirit enable us to now obey these commands? Watch yourself and don't let them in. In the case of watching ourselves, what resting in Christ's accomplishment and walking in the Spirit enables us to do is to be confident and bold with the truth that we have. 
in the case of not receiving false teachers, what resting in Christ's accomplishment and walking in a spirit allows us to do is to be reminded. We get to remind ourselves and others what biblical love actually looks like. Biblical love isn't truth minus compassion. Biblical love isn't truth minus charity. Or hearing friends out from the other side. Biblical love isn't just hiding yourself from the world and building a bunker underneath your house and and hoping that everything goes okay. But biblical love is truth minus nothing. Biblical love is truth plus nothing. Where we can, by the Spirit, know all who Christ is and what his accomplishment on the cross for us fully means. And this is powerful because our hope is now understandable. Our walk is firm within his footsteps. Where he goes, we follow. Our our faith has sight in that we trust in the very Son of God who came as a man for us. If you don't have Jesus in fullness, meaning meaning Jesus in the flesh, then you don't have a savior with the humanity that can save you. We, we must therefore have a savior, John is telling us, that not only understands us, not only is sovereign over everything, but we must have a savior who can take our place on the cross. And what the Bible is clear about is we do have a savior who did take our place on the cross. And he was truly God and truly man. And if you believe in that, oh, then it's like when John wants to be with you. It's like your joy is complete. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, we come to you thankful at you reminding us continually of your love for us. We thank you for the, for the little things like John sending this letter to a church that we can read thousands of years later, that we can see not only how we can live on a daily basis, but, but we can see how much you love us and at what cost you loved us. Father, we pray that you would instill in us boldness to seek you and understand you. We pray that you would instill in us a desire to abide in you. Lord, we know that when we have that desire, you keep us within you. So we pray all these things in the name and the power of your son, Jesus. Amen.